Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome and thanks for tuning in to the Two Fit Podcast, hosted by the Two Fit guys, Jake and Josh. Now, Two Fit, by definition, is actively pursuing a state of health and well being beyond perceived limitations. So, if you're looking to push the boundaries of performance mentally, physically, and everywhere in between, then you have come to the right place. On the Two Fit Podcast, we will be interviewing and having fireside chats with renowned experts from doctors and strength and conditioning coaches to athletes and entrepreneurs. Our goal is to extract tools and tricks of the trade that you can implement, whether you're a world-class athlete, weekend warrior, entrepreneur, or grinding out the eight to five, all in order to assist you on your journey to becoming Two Fit. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Fit Podcast, where today we got to sit down with the man that you're truly going to enjoy, Dr. Wes Crisp. He's a sports medicine doc and physiatrist, and he's based out of Arizona, where he runs his own practice. And honestly, he's a man with too many credentials to name, and he's earned these from a lengthy and diverse background that's truly honored him and given him a wealth of knowledge on the human body and how it moves. See, Dr. Chris started out as a personal trainer when the personal training phase was first truly taken off here in the States. As he quickly became one of the top personal trainers in the industry, he wanted to take his fitness and movement expertise, though, and utilize it in another fashion. So, Wes took his skills and graduated as a DO, a doctor of osteopathy, and this started Wes's career as a sports medicine physician with an emphasis on functional movement patterns. So he can basically look at you See how you're moving, see how you're walking, and tell you what's wrong and how to fix it. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty cool. Now, his expertise truly shines through when you're talking with him, and we get to just touch on that a little bit in this conversation here, where we tackle subjects such as what to do when you see people with just poor technique in the gym, how Dr. Crisp used to handle it, and how he handles it now, how nutritional ideas and practices have changed, say, over the last 10 years, and how to be successful in your career and set yourself apart from the rest of the competition, no matter what that career path is. Now, Dr. Chris, he knows what he's doing, and that's why we're honored to have him here on our team here at 2Fit USA. His nutritional and physical fitness knowledge is honestly second to none, but on top of all that, he rocks a bald haircut, and we all know how cool guys are with bald haircuts. So, get the notepads ready, and enjoy this conversation with our colleague and friend, Wes Crisp. All right, everybody. Today, we are lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Wes Crisp. He started out as a poli-sci major, undergrad, University of West Florida. Is that correct? Right. Good. And then went on to get his master's in exercise science. Right. And then once he got bored with that, he went on <laughs> and said, uh, I'm just going to torture myself and go to medical school. But uh sounds like it worked out for him. <clears throat> He's been doing that for 20 years now, practicing sports medicine. And... I mean, I knew that we were going to get along first time I saw you because of your haircut. So <laughs> I knew we were in good company. Yeah, welcome on the show. Thanks. Happy to have you. Yeah, good to see you guys. We had a great lunch conversation earlier with uh, with Dr. Crisp. I just kind of want to continue that conversation now. So, Doc, if you just give us kind of a background more on yourself, kind of more your day-to-day, what's what's it look like for you? Sure. I think you did a good job of a quick summary for, you know, where I came from. And so now I practice, uh, I'm a a physiatrist, so I spoke focus in uh, uh, physical medicine rehabilitation, and so my day to day practice is pretty busy, and I see a variety of patients. I see everything from 
um, sports injuries in kids, high school athletes, sometimes college and above, um, all the way out to 70, 80, 90-year-olds that have uh, new injuries, traumas, um, chronic back and neck pain, joint pain, a little bit of everything. Now, what you kind of told us earlier today, but what's the, the number one injury that you see? Probably the number one thing we see is low back stuff. We see a lot of low back pain and, and low back injuries. Is that just from you know, chronic pain just kind of sneaks up on people or is it actual like an event that happened? It's a little bit of both. It's probably a, a pretty even split. Usually when they come, by the time they come to see me, they've, uh, a lot of folks have already had pain for a while and it's just getting worse or they had what we call an acute exacerbation of it. So it all of a sudden got worse. Sometimes there's a cause, sometimes not. And then there are people who were doing fine, having no symptoms at all and been over to tie a shoe and suddenly showed up in their office. You gave me some great advice earlier, and I, I wanted to ask you on here, but you kind of ran me through it earlier. So what's something that somebody can do almost like temporarily to relieve that low back pain? Because I, I kind of tweaked my back the other day. We were doing some some squat cleans and then didn't give enough time to some front squats, and it just got super tender on me, and I can't even like bend down correctly right now. And uh, I think you gave me some really good advice. I haven't been able to try it out yet, but I will. And uh, so maybe just run some people through that, what you can do almost temporarily to relieve some of that stuff. Some of it depends on what the injury actually is. And, and so just watching you move and talking to you and, and checking you out initially, it looks like you probably injured or irritated one of your lumbar discs. And so that's really the, the advice is pretty specific for that. So in a case like that, it's relative rest. It's taking it easy and you don't get to work out for a little while. It's hard so to do. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, and then uh, sometimes we'll put people on some anti-inflammatories for a few days. That usually helps. And then the thing that I like, uh, particularly for your mechanics and how you were moving, is just trying to stretch the back out, trying to decompress it a little bit and distract some of those vertebrae. Um, patients that are able to do that will get some, some pain relief, sometimes temporary, sometimes long-lasting. So. Well, Wes, what, um, I'd like to get your perspective on kind of your early personal training days because I'm sure that kind of brings a, a unique aspect to your current practice that you were, you were in that field for eight to ten years, as you mentioned. What, just give us a little background on kind of how you got into personal training, what kind sure. of drew you to it. Yeah, so while I was getting my master's degree, uh, that was sort of when personal training first came about and became something that people were aware of and, and started to be interested in. And I ended up uh, just meeting some people that were um, in the area that were actually had a personal training gym. It was one of the first of its kind. So everybody that came in there had a personal trainer. There were a bunch of really qualified people doing some really neat stuff. So I, I just walked in the door and started working there while I was still getting my master's degree, stayed on after I finished and did that full time for a while. And then after uh, doing that for a little bit, went out on my own and, and opened up my own practice doing it. And I, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And it definitely impacts and uh, influences how I view patients today because I worked with a wide variety of clients as a trainer and then brought that into medicine by I, I'm not only looking at somebody in front of me sitting on a, on a bench or on a bed and watching how they stand or um, uh, static positions. I actually want to see a move. I'll have them move around in the room, have them move around out in the hallway and do some, sometimes if they're athletes, have them do some athletic movements and watch how they do. And I think I'm just looking at movement patterns and, and pain patterns with a little different eye because of that personal training background. Yeah, that makes sense. It almost sounds like on the other end of the spectrum would be like a, a football coach that never played football, you know, type, type thing. <laughs> sure. It's like you've got that experience of training people, seeing movement, practicing movement. And then I think it's obviously probably better for you to evaluate them. So what happens when you see like bad movement, bad form in the gym? Do you go in and <laughs> correct people? Do you feel that responsibility? You know, for a long time I did. I, I, I went over and I was all, you know, I'm a pretty laid back guy generally and I would go over and try to 
try to give them a little gentle guidance. And what I discovered is the vast majority of people that are doing that in gym are not interested in having any guidance. So I, I, I never had any really unpleasant interactions, but I had a lot of people kind of look at me like, why are you over here? Because in the gym, I'm just another guy working out. I don't, you know, I'm not, don't have a white coat and I don't have any, um, you know, background or anything to, to say that. So I think that many times they, they think it's just one more gym rat coming up and telling them what they ought to be doing. And, and some of those folks were probably doing it because somebody told them to do that in the first place. And now I'm giving them different advice. Yeah. We saw some, some people earlier in the gym. One guy looked like he was trying to break the rowing machine. And then another guy looked like he was trying to break his back deadlifting. Me and Josh always talk about like, we almost feel like it's our duty sometimes to go talk to those people. But yeah, sometimes they're just not having it. You yeah. Know? You definitely don't want to come off as like that jerk at the gym. No. Just trying to tell everybody yeah. how, to, how to work out. But no. yeah. at the same time, you don't want to see somebody injure themselves. No, and I'm I'm always a little bit torn. I, I I used to joke that what I ought to do is take a bunch of business cards with me and hand them out when I see people doing that. But I I still you know I try to help them, and particularly if it's somebody that's starting out as a beginner. I saw a gal the other day that was obviously learning how to deadlift and just ran the weight up way too fast, to, and and you could see her form just falling apart. So went over and she was she was really receptive to it, and it's really it was a nice interaction. I feel like I helped, so it was great. So I'm curious, what what made you make that jump from being the personal trainer to going to medical school? You know, that's an interesting one. I, I, I was going along and things were great. Had a thriving practice and was really enjoying it. Um, had a wide variety of clients and, and was having fun with it. And after a little while, in all honesty, I just got bored. I, I realized over a several month period of time that I just wasn't as enthused about it as I, as I had been. And I went home one night and I told my wife, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm more interested in my clients and my athletes when they're injured than when they're healthy. I sort of thought on that for a little while. And then a couple weeks later, I came home and I said, well, you know, I've kind of figured out what the problem is. I said, I think I need to go to medical school. And my wife is wonderful. She's uh, very laid back. And uh, like some of my colleagues say, I married up, way up. So uh, I, I said that to her, and she said, that sounds like a great idea. What do we need to do to do that? So there you go. Curious, what would be your advice for either yourself looking back when you started training or someone that's getting into it now? Because the tra personal training scenes evolved a ton and exploded it seems like a, a huge rush of personal trainers and certifications out there so what, what kind of advice would you give to maybe yourself looking back or someone looking to get involved oh, that's a good question i think that explosion of options for becoming certified and trying to get some basic training to do that job is a real disservice to to people that are trying to get started and they don't know where to go or which workshop to do and I think there are a handful that, that probably produce pretty good results and produce people that are safe because when you come to it, generally what you're coming to it is a performance mindset. You want people to perform better. But what you need to learn first is how to do that safely. You can add the performance part to it later. But what you need to focus on first is basic anatomy, safe mechanics. How do you avoid hurting people? What do you need to not do? And then you can work in protocols and different types of metabolic systems to work and all that sort of fun stuff that we like to do. But I think what happens now is a lot of a lot of folks that start off along that path don't get that basic safety part of the basic sort of they learn a little anatomy, but they don't learn functional anatomy. They don't they don't learn how to keep somebody out of a bad position. What are positions not to be in? And then once you've got that down, then you can take it any direction you want. So do you have any hands on training anymore, like with your patients walking them through exercises or programming form or anything like that? Sometimes I will when I have time. A lot of it is time limited in the clinic, but but uh, I've been known to get down on the bed or get down on the floor and show them something, or have them actually do it in the room and you know do a squat or do a single legged move or things like that and, and try to run through it. But 
fortunately, I have access to some great physical therapists. And so a lot of times what I'll do um, is actually run through physical therapy through, the, through that part of the clinic and watch people when they're in action. And that's great. I enjoy doing that. Yeah. I'm kind of interested to hear how your uh, your personal training business, like what did that look like? Because I feel like when you think of personal training, you just think of somebody in who works basically for the gym. But this was your own enterprise, right? Yeah, well, this was this was at the very early outset of it, so it was it was the simplest thing in the world. It was a um, a one on one interaction um, initially in some uh, private gyms, and then in uh, my own gym. So I was able to do it, you know, pretty uh, pretty simply, and and from an economic standpoint, it worked out real well. Cool. So you kind of always been an entrepreneur, would you say? I've always had that mindset. I think you know it's always been something I was willing to do. And, and excited about, and I think that's the biggest is you can't force that. You have to. I, I think I think now there's this sort of enthusiasm or you know interest in being an entrepreneur, but being an entrepreneur is less important than being enthusiastic about what you want to do and what you're bringing to the market and where you want to bring value and how you want to serve people and what problems you want to solve. If you can answer those questions, then the entrepreneurial part of it just comes naturally. Like, oh, this is what I want to do. And you can do it with somebody else or for somebody else or on your own. I think some people jump into the, I want to do something on my own part first without figuring out what is it that you want to do? What what type of service you want to provide? Yeah, being an entrepreneur these days sounds pretty, you know, cool and hip and kind of sexy. Until you get that first tax bill. Exactly. (laughs) Or that first health insurance bill. See how much you owe, right? (laughs) Did you, um, when you had your personal training business, did you have other trainers working for you? Or were you kind of... I didn't, I had um, initially tried a little bit of that and, and a lot of it was simply um, there wasn't supply for what I wanted and was looking for. Um, I ended up with some kind of contract people that would, that would work um, doing it. But um, about the time it really got too big for me to sort of manage and, and need to really add any staff to was when I decided to switch gears. So there was kind of a schism that was happening right then when I realized I either needed to franchise this out or I needed to had a bunch of staff or change things around so how would you go about marketing a new personal training business or if you're just a personal trainer on your own you don't want to work for a global gym mm-hmm. how would you kind of go about getting the word out any recommendations based on your experience wow that's a good question you know it really depends on how much um, how much backing you have and how much you're able to sort of put into the thing up front to wait for a return on the backing um, a lot of that is i think a lot of folks that start off as trainers, you know, they have to do what I, you know, what is known as guerrilla marketing. So it's got to be pretty low cost and pretty easy to do. And in all honesty, I think the best marketing is word of mouth. You need to figure out some way to get a few people to let you work with them and, and show what you can do and then tell everybody you run into, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is my card. I'd be happy if you'd send me some business and, and give it a try. And the other thing, too, from an economic standpoint, you want it to have very low barriers to enter. You want people to be able to. Um, start off with uh, with a modest cost. You don't want to sign them up on a six month training contract for some big lump sum. It's just a recipe for disaster. Do you feel that almost the current environment, with all the certifications out there, amenities certifying new trainers, do you feel like it's almost too low of a barrier of entry for new trainers to get involved? Like maybe not enough education. I think so. I think so. I think you see that. I I think the places that do it well require um, you know a fair amount of fair investment of time and, and energy and effort on, on the trainer's part. And it takes a little while before they can get started. You can't do it in a weekend. There's more to it than that. It's more complicated. It doesn't look very complicated, particularly if you're in great shape and you know how to work out. 
it looks pretty simple. It seems pretty simple, but there's a difference in training yourself and training somebody else and training them safely and intelligently. I feel like there'd been a lot of those like kind of fly by night, get certified in the weekend type, type uh, operations. And there's a lot of that. I kind of want to go back to your, your first question there for him, Josh, and kind of, um, expand that to what you're doing now and being a doctor. So, I mean, being a doctor, I feel like you have to be a bit of an entrepreneur yourself. I mean, you are basically your own brand. You kind of have to like risk a little bit, I think, because you're really betting on yourself with the amount of money you're probably going to be in the hole uh, when you get out nowadays. Also, the amount of time it's going to take. So how do you brand yourself and market yourself to kind of set yourself apart from your competitors? What do, what do you have to do? Oh, that's a good one. I, I think it, I think it's almost a similar answer. Um, you know, medicine is a one-on-one activity. It's a one-on-one sport. Um, it's it's a, a physician and a patient. And from the standpoint of there are physicians working inside big health organizations and not really necessarily marketing the practice or the organization, but they still are their own brand. And, and so, again, my approach has always been one-to-one. It's been word of mouth. Hey, you know what? If you if you got something out of this, tell some people. You know, be happy to love to see your family, love to see your friends. And um, fortunately, that's worked out really well for for me. I I've always been a little bit, just a little bit skeptical of medical practices that do a lot of advertising. Um, some of those are aren't necessarily the best. They're just the loudest. So I, I think that training is a little bit like medicine. I think they share a little bit in common from that standpoint. And it's it's doing the best job you can, taking great care of the person that's in front of you, and then giving that time to, to show and benefit. You see a lot of those advertisements these days for those little private urgent care clinics that are, seem to be popping up all over the place, which I guess they're little money makers. That seems pretty saturated now. I mean, that's every corner, which I, I guess is convenient for a lot of people. What do you it think? is. I mean, for the va- and, and really it depends on who's, who's staffing it and, and what, the, what the, uh, the system is there. But those serve a great purpose. They really do because the vast majority of things that need to be treated urgently don't need to go to the ER. They can be done elsewhere. And if you don't have access to a, a primary care physician, they're, they're, they're useful. I think there are limitations on what they can do and limitations on what they can diagnose. And, again, you really have to have somebody working there that um, knows enough not to get in over their head. So do you hit, adhere to any sort of philosophies in your practice? I know you went to DO school, which is a little more of a, kind of a naturopathic type program. Not so much naturopathic, but um, uh, really at this point, at this day and age, the, there's very little distinction between practicing DOs and MDs. But certainly in the training, there's there's a mus- more of a musculoskeletal approach in the DO schools as, as a um, kind of an overall part of the curriculum. So all through it, you're talking about the musculoskeletal system. It's not um, divvied up quite as much as it is in, in a lot of medical schools. And so you, it, it, it really jived with what I wanted to do anyway. So it, it spoke to my, you know, to my interest down the road. Do they cover any more nutrition in the DO versus MD? No, again, that's sort of hit or miss. That depends on the school. There are some, there are some med schools, MD or DO, that cover more, but the vast majority of them are still pretty, pretty lacking. So how did you come to that decision to go DO versus MD? Well, there were a couple different reasons. I, at the time that I was applying to medical school, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good time to go into medicine. Everybody, every doctor I talked to, tried to talk me out of it. You know, it's it still was, the same today. Yeah, so. it is now again. Yeah, um, it was the advent of early managed care, kind of the first big iteration of it. Nobody was happy, and I, um, you know, I was in the deep south, and and I I happened to meet a, um, a female general surgeon who was also a DO, which is a really unique <laughs> combination at the time, and she was. 
really happy about medicine. She loved working with her patients. She loved what she did. She was so enthusiastic about it that um, it kind of infected me. I thought, you know, I need to, I need to investigate this more. So I started to learn more about it. And once I investigated the philosophy and saw how it jived with my background and my interest in my training, it made made a lot of sense. And I, I was you know, fortunate enough to have some choices and ended up choosing to go to DO school. So I'm curious, what um, you know, we all we all hear that sitting is so bad for you, right? And I'd just like to get your take on what maybe some tips that people that work the eight to five or, or you know desk jockeys, a lot of commutes. What are the issues with sitting for long periods, and what can people do to maybe counteract that or at least alleviate some of those issues created by sitting? Sure, I, I would say I would say right out of the box, there are three easy things to identify with prolonged sitting that are that are um, bad for the body. First off, when you're when you're sitting all the time, you tend to pool blood in your lower extremities, and so there's there's sort of a stasis of fluid where fluid just sits in parts of the body, um, and that's not what you want. You always want fluid in the body moving around. You want it um, you want it busy. Um, the other thing is the vast majority of us do not sit in good posture, so we tend to flex the lumbar spine, we tend to lean forward. And that loads up the lumbar discs in a way that, that we don't like and can be injurious over time. The other thing it does is it also, um, you get that thoracic slump where we're all kind of lean forward. You get your head turtled forward, your neck extended. And so you end up with fluid hanging around your lower extremities, your low back hurts, and your neck hurts. So it's, a, it's an easy combination of problems. The main fix is the body was not built to be in any one position for a long period of time. It wasn't meant to stand still. It wasn't meant to sit. Um, about the only time you know you're still like that is when you're lying in bed at night, and even then you don't stay in the same position. You still move around a surprising amount. So the biggest thing people can do is change positions. Change positions. You know, um, I love the idea of the standing desks, but what we really need is a sit-stand desk that will go back and forth. And you need to move out of the, away from that desk periodically too. You need to get up and walk around the desk, or go get some water, or you know, stand up at your desk and stretch. Sit in your chair and stretch a little bit. So there just there needs to be. You need to be busy, not sitting still. You kind of answered what I was going to parlay that into, and that was I'm sure that it's not beneficial the entire other way of standing all day. No, over, in fact, I, I, was just, I was just looking at a little short study where they looked at that, and um, uh, people that do that tend to report uh, ankle, knee, foot pain. Again, they tend to collect fluid. Their feet swell. If you've ever stood around for hours at a time, you're, at the end of that, your feet tend to be swollen. Um, and they'll get some low back pain from just standing still. Again, the body just it wasn't meant to stand still all the time. Right? Yeah, I think it just goes back to one of those Malcolm Gladwell books I was reading. He always talks about everything in life, if you look at it in detail, is along a bell curve. So it's almost like everything in moderation, which you hear. Um, you can always be on one side or the other of that bell curve. I kind of wanted to, to touch back on I thought it was funny when you said that you, you liked your patients better when they were sick or injured, right? <laughs> Don't, don't all doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I did a stint in a, a healthcare administration, and a lot of the, the talk that they were on was this, this surge of preventative care, pay for performance, paying to keep. How are you going to switch to paying the doctors to keep people healthy? Now, people are always going to get hurt. I mean, I think you're always going to have a job. But have you ever – have you seen any changes in your practice yet because of that, or do you see anything coming down the road at you? You know, because I'm a because I'm a specialist and a bit of a subspecialist, really. I don't I don't see that side of things specifically. Um, we try to do a lot of preventive care within our special within what I'm doing, and so 
um, particularly with athletes, I'm going to talk about their sport. So when they're better, when we're ready to release them back to play or send them back into the gym or however we're doing that, we're going to talk about, hey, how do you prevent this? How do we reduce the risk of recurrence? So, you know, in, in, in the case with your low back, what we would do is we would run through the mechanics of, of kind of some of the things that you want to do. If there's a particular lift or movement that I'm not that excited about you doing ever, we're going to talk about that and we're going to negotiate that a little bit. Um, I always say I don't tell runners not to run and I, you know, and, and you can't. You try to work around that as much as possible. So I think in a specific way, we do a lot of preventive medicine. Now, you can't bill for that. You don't get compensated for it, but I think that's part of what you do. And that goes back to practice building, branding yourself. You, that's, you know, you, that's part of what we should be offering to, to, to our patients. Yeah, I was just curious to see, you know, how that was affecting you because I think it's going to be kind of a huge undertaking to totally switch from how it is now to paying for performance and keeping people out of the hospital without completely going broke or the hospital is going broke. It, it's it's a very challenging situation, and and most of that, I think, most preventative medicine is not done in the doctor's office. It's done at your house, right. and it's done in how you eat and and how you how you exercise, how you manage your stress, uh, how you optimize your, you know, your life and, and your environment. Yeah, you kind of just touched on nutrition there. What Do you look at a lot of the nutrition aspects of, of your patients when they're coming in, kind of research, hey, what's your diet look like? How do you see the nutrition tie in to not just their performance? We all know if people eat healthy, they're going to feel better, right? But tie into injuries, like kind of keeping them out of this inflammation state where their bodies are able to recover from their work, their workout, and still perform better. I think that I think there are two easy things that I see a lot and that we talk about a lot um, uh, in clinic. The, the first, the, most, the easiest one is really weight. Um, there are certain injuries that are really associated with uh, increased body weight, particularly lower extremity joint injuries, um, some low back stuff, depending on the patient, how they're built. So, so we talk about a lot of basic weight management strategies and, and exercise and diet and things. Then the next patient is the patient that just keeps showing up with irritated joints. And, and what seems, what starts to seem like a chronic irritation or inflammation somewhere. Now, some of those patients may have underlying rheumatologic disorders. And so we're going to look for markers of uh, autoimmune disorders and, and severe inflammatory diseases. But once you rule that out, then we're left with this big subset of patients that have what seems to be, and that's what we've talked about in medicine, and I think in nutrition and exercise and health the last few years, is is there an inflammatory, sort of a, a low-level inflammatory process that's going on that keeps contributing to this, that, that causes a lot of this to sort of not get better? Now, I made a question come to mind. Do you, do you see that weight loss and, on the other side, building muscle, both, they can go hand in hand, do you see that those are influenced more by lack of hormone hormones or a hormonal level issue or lifestyle? Because I, I feel like some people, they're like, I'm doing everything I can. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm eating right, but I'm just not losing it. And it could just be an underlying hormonal problem, or it could be if they're not building muscle, same thing. Hey, I'm working out a lot. I'm eating right, you know, getting my carbs in post-workout, eating plenty of protein. What do you see as the bigger factor there? I, I, th I think there are three groups that, that would fall into that and that would, we can talk about in that question. The first group are patients that really have underlying hormonal abnormalities, that have some type of endocrine disruption or, or, or sometimes a disease state that needs to be diagnosed and treated from a medical standpoint. And that's a small group. It's a relatively small group. And they're, they're, they're not easy to identify, but they're, 
you, you kind of know them when you see them most of the time. It doesn't take long to figure it out. There's another group that seems to be just suboptimal hormone blocks. That uh, We talk about things like adrenal fatigue. We were talking about that earlier. Um, we hang a lot of terms on it. We look at a lot of uh, levels of uh, you know male hormones and female hormones and, and things like that. Um, and then and then there's a bigger group that is probably just lifestyle. But we have to make sure that we don't lump everybody into that group because they don't belong. There are definitely patients, I think, that um, would benefit from further analysis of hormones and how they're interacting with their lifestyle choices and vice versa. So how, how do you think people, maybe some advice, how can people get to that point? Because maybe they, is it just to that point where they go, I'm doing everything right, at least in their mind. I'm just not seeing the results. And then it's, hey, let's get tested. I, I, I'll say this, and this comes from my experience as a trainer. The vast majority of people that say they're doing everything right are probably not quite doing everything right. Um, we, if you really, if you, you know, let's take diet as an example. That's the easiest one to sort of, sort of cherry pick. If you're not writing, you know, for a period of time, and it doesn't have to be a long period of time, three to five days of your typical diet, you, you probably need to weigh and measure and record everything you eat. And don't change your diet. Just eat, do what you're doing. And then we sit down and look at that. And, and usually when people do that, you find some pretty easy answers to why they're not getting hurt to what they're getting. Um, if they do that, and I've, I've have seen some, some patients in, in class like that in the past, if they get to that point, if we really, if they really are doing everything they can, and, and, we look at you know we look at diet we look at their caloric expenditures we look at their lifestyle their stress management because that's another issue um, that can screw up hormones and weight loss then th- those patients definitely need to have further probably laboratory analysis so as you've continued in your education and training how's your own personal nutrition switched from say ten years ago to how you eat now that's a great question. I- in the biggest change is, I think, the big change for all of us um, who are trying to stay uh, current and healthy, which is uh, a decreased carbohydrate intake and, and manipulation of carbohydrate intake. So that's probably the biggest change. Now, part of that is driven by family history and genetics, and I think everybody has to think about that. Um, I have a family history of diabetes, family history of some high blood pressure. And so for me, sugar intake and carbohydrate intake influences my sugar levels. It's quite sensitive to it. So that has a big impact. Was there any tests that you did to find that out? Mm-hmm. Did some, did some, some blood work? testing and, and did some blood work and, and uh, kind of thought that there might be something going on. And so it was confirmed. So responded to that by changing carbohydrate intake and, and decreasing it significantly. I also eat a fair amount more fat than I used to in the past. And I don't feel bad about it. Yeah, <laughs> I used to eat it anyway, but I just uh, you know now now I eat it and I feel real good about it. So I know we were talking a little bit about ketosis earlier. Do you stay near ketosis, or what? What kind of like, or, or do you measure macros out? I, I don't. I don't. I haven't. Not in a long time. Um, I, I'm I'm more of an instinctive eater, and I would say I'm probably not in ketosis most of the time. Uh, we talked about it earlier, and, and as an experiment, it was great and it worked really well. Um, but as a longer-term strategy, I struggle with energy levels and I struggled with performance in the gym and, and strength levels and some other things that caused me to kind of pull back from that a little bit. It, it seems to work better for me to simply just keep an eye on, keep my carbohydrate intake kind of in a low moderate. So when you say carb manipulation, just for clarification for everybody out there, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, carbohydrate timing, more, more timing and volume. So not only the number of carbs that you take in, but when you take them in. Do you, do you kind of parse them out and take them in a little bit through the day, or do you take them in just around your workout, before and after your workout? Or that large barbecue chicken pizza at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
If you're gonna eat, if you are gonna eat that, you should do it right around your your window, <laughs> your window of gains, as they say. You probably just shouldn't do that. Or that, <laughs> you know. So, good deal. Um, I think we can transition to. I I just saw this this PubMed article. Um, and I'm gonna always doing research. Really butcher oh, it. Oh, That's oh right. boy. It's a study on like Brazilian monkey rats or something. <laughs> yeah, it's right up my area of expertise. Anyways, it was done at the the University of Wisconsin. And uh, well, it's already suspect, right? <laughs> uh, it's called Athletes' Expectation about Sports Injury Rehab, a cross cultural study. Okay, so what was it published in? Journal of Sports Rehabilitation, September 9th, 2015. And they revealed that significant main effects for country and sport type so that's physical versus a non physical sport. Specifically, U.S. athletes were found to have higher expectations of personal commitment and facilitative conditions than their U.K. and Finnish counterparts. And athletes participating in the physical contact sports had higher expectations of facilitative conditions and of the expertise of the sports medicine professional as compared to athletes participating in non-physical sports. So their conclusion is apparently some advice for you, which I thought was funny. But they said the sports uh, medicine professional, especially those in the U.S., should consider the sport and environment when providing their services. And they need to highlight and demonstrate their expertise during the rehab process, especially for those who compete in physical contact sports. So I guess, first of all, <laughs> thoughts on it. And then, you know, it, how, do you see almost a psychological side of of rehab? So I think there are about 100 things we could talk about right. from that article. First off, I'm not exactly sure what facilitative conditions are. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have, I think we'd have actual, to look at the actual, you know. I think they do in some facility. fancy jargon. Yeah. <laughs> they use some real fancy big words. Um, competitive athletes, especially contact sport athletes, but but I think all athletes that are, that are truly in the competitive arena um, are demanding, as they should be, of a sports medicine professional. They feel like there's a lot on the line. They have a tremendous amount invested emotionally in their recovery and in their performance, and they um, are demanding of what you provide to them. So I think we certainly need to tell, make sure those athletes know who they're working with, who's taking care of them, who's what the team looks like, what the roles of the team members are. And then you need to set realistic expectations for them because um, uh, the football player effect, which is if you take one uh, – NFL running back and you fix his ACL and he manages to come back in six months, that becomes the new norm. So everybody that tears an ACL expects to be back to full activity in six months and it just doesn't work that way for most people. I would agree with the, if I understand the bulk of that article, I would certainly agree with it that the athletes expect to be, unless they've had the injury before and they know what it looks like, most of them don't appreciate how long it takes. But what we find is that if we can treat things aggressively in the acute phase, if you can get an athlete to really recover and really try to rest and get better for a few weeks, they'll come back and you won't have to be dealing with an injury for months or shutting the season down. But it's it's really difficult sometimes. to It's, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching thing to take an athlete out of competition for a period of time, take them out of that social support of the team, you know, out of practice, all those things. And so when we do that, we try to keep those athletes integrated into the team. We try to keep them um, at practice, even if they're riding a bike or sitting on the sideline with a clipboard or, or going to meetings, things like that. Um, same thing with gymnasts, with dancers. We try to keep them in the studio, in the gym, whether they're doing anything or not. You can almost always find something for that athlete to do. Just stay mentally engaged. Just stay mentally engaged. Just because for most athletes, their sport and their team and, and, and that um, social network is huge. It's it's part of their identity. And, and, and it's great. It's very supportive. We know from m many, many studies, multiple 
data points over time, but that's healthy for young athletes, it's healthy for adults. And so we try to keep them integrated into into the team. I guess working with athletes, you're already working with committed people for the most part. But have you ever seen, say, two similar athletes, two similar injuries, one comes in with a certain mindset, you know, he's buying into your expertise, you know, what they're saying, your program, your treatment, they have a certain level of commitment, and then this other athlete who just is so almost like depressed because how could this happen to me? And have you seen that almost shape their rehab from there? It definitely has an impact. I think I would say that there are more commonalities amongst them than there are differences. Most athletes go through similar phases as they're going through recognizing they have an injury, recognizing they're not going to be able to perform, starting to understand what the recovery is going to be like. So they're, they're far more um, similar in that process. But you, you definitely have athletes that are um, better at that than others. Um, some athletes, it's really, it's just devastating to them. It's difficult many times within, with our endurance athletes, with our runners and things, because they almost always have um, an A race. They've got something that they're training for. That's usually when we see them is in the ramp up to an event. And you tell them, I don't think you're going to make that event. And sometimes these things are a year out, and they've trained for months. So it, it's tough with those athletes. They they just don't, they're not willing to pull back sometimes. So it's it's always a tough conversation to have, but that's that's what we do. So. So, Wes, what does your morning look like? Do you have any routines that you stick to? Maybe the first thing you eat? Is it the same thing every day? I don't know. Anything that, you know, sure, kind of yeah. gets you going? Uh, in the, typically, in a pretty much seven days a week, I get up pretty early. I'm an early riser, always, generally always have been. So I'm up early. Most of the time, I'm the first one up. Nobody else is up. And so uh, I many times I'll take that as my workout time. It works out really good. My body likes to work out later in the day, but my schedule likes to work out early in the day. So... I'll get a um, get a training session in. I usually don't eat before I train, so that's not a, that's not a worry. Um, many times I I'm going to try to take anywhere from 15 minutes to 45 minutes or even an hour on good days and uh, sit down and do some planning, do some journaling, spend some time thinking about goals and focus, and then it starts the day. And that's before the workout or after? Depends on the day. Depends on the schedule. Um, a lot of times it's after. I just find I'm I'm one of those guys. My brain is energized after workout. I'm I'm thinking, and I, you know how they say your best ideas come to you in the shower. My best ideas come to me when I'm training. So, uh, a lot of times I try to, you know, sit down right afterwards and, and take some notes, write some things down, and capture that before your memory fails you. So it's wake up, out of bed, gym clothes, hit the weights. Is that kind of the? There's a little. Fast? There's a little. Dele- the older I get, there's a little bit more. There's a little bit more of a pause between that wake up, gym clothes, and then get the, and then hit the workout. It, it takes a little while longer to get the get things moving. But do you work out at home, or do you work out? Well, probably seventy five percent of the time. I've got a little setup in the garage, and it's uh, it's in Phoenix, so sometimes in the summer it's not that much fun. But, um, and then about twenty five percent of the time, I go to the gym just to use equipment there and be around people and, and see some different things. We got a great pool. So yeah, me and Josh have recently been kind of experimenting with different workout times. I used to be kind of a 6 a.m. guy myself, and then we were doing it like 5.30, 6.30 in the evening, and then we went to 8.30. And uh, it is interesting because I do notice a better workout kind of that early afternoon. I think from what I've read, you know, your your core temperature goes up, your reaction time goes up, you're kind of more alert. Do you notice the same difference? Is that what you're kind oh, of getting I, at? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you can call it circadian rhythms. You can mm-hmm. call it just uh, hormonal differences, but oh, I'm absolutely there's a – I think from a performance standpoint, by far, I'm best, and I think most people are, mid to late afternoon. I can't work out late at night. I never could. I used to try that when I was training, when that was, you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night. 
I can't sleep if I do that. I'm up. I'm I'm energized. I'm ready to go. So, is there any one supplement that you can't go without? Can't go without? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, there are some things <clears throat> I prefer not to go without, but but uh, I don't think there's anything I can't possibly do without. We haven't I, I had our a, stuff yet. <laughs> that's not. I'll give you that much. That's true. That's so true. Nothing wrong with a plug. I mean, as as a practicing physician, is there what's the things that you look for in your supplements that you take? Um, I'm a big guy on what the ingredients are. I want things to be really simple. I don't want to spend 30 minutes reading the ingredients. There's, there's no need for that. Um, I take a, tend to take a whole foods approach to diet and I try to carry that into my supplementation as well as much as possible. So what is, um, what's one thing that you know you do differently than most? I think at this point I think about things a little bit differently than most. I, yeah. I have a pretty unique uh, background. Speaking of background noise, right. like, yeah. <laughs> working on the building here, yeah. Um, you think at the Ritz-Carlton, you know, it'd be nice and quiet. think at the Ritz-Carlton, it'd be nice and quiet. It was pretty good till then. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a pretty interesting background, and, and all those experiences didn't seem to, didn't seem to come together and, and unify and, until now. And, and so now I think in, in what I do, I'm able to look at uh, at patients and think about them a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Is that one thing you'd say that kind of makes you successful? I think that. I think um, work ethic. I think willing to get in there and, and work at things and hit it hard. I'm not you know, laziness and boredom. You know, from the standpoint of sitting around doing nothing's not my, not not my issue. Yeah. So Wes, what um, what's the book you've read most recently? Oh yeah, I love I love to read. Um, certain times in my life, it's tough to get to get the time to do it. But um, most recently, I read uh, The Power of Focus, which is an older book, but I think has some great lessons in it for all of us. So why did you pick that one? A good friend of mine suggested it to me, and uh, he and I have worked on some different ventures before, and, and uh, it really. Uh, was a great recommendation. I would suggest. I think everybody would pick it up. The one I'm about halfway through now is called Synchronicity, and also, uh, yeah, yeah, also I think worth reading. Uh, it's good. I'm only part of the way into it, but but I think there's some pretty neat neat ideas in it. What, what is synchronicity synchronicity about? What's the kind of the common theme? Without finishing it, I'm I wouldn't say for for sure, but I think the basic idea is that um, there are there are few coincidences. Um, things happen around you all the time that fit into what you want to do and the directions you want to go and, and your goals and your interests if you're open to it. If you're if you're you know closed minded and, and not willing to take advantage of those opportunities and, and ask questions of people and interact with them and take chances when you see opportunities present themselves and you're you're gonna stay right exactly on the path that you're on. And if you like it, that's great. If that's if you're happy exactly where you are, that's super but um, I think most of us want to be learners and we want to be um, entrepreneurs and we, we want to try new things, and that's the only way to do it. You mentioned earlier you, you wake up really early. Is that something you would recommend for others? Because I know a lot of successful people that that's, that's their go-to is, is, hey, I wake up early, everything is quiet, maybe the sun's still down or slowly rising. And um, a lot of people I've always heard kind of say that that sets them apart a little bit. You know what I would say is, for, you should do what works for you, but you have to experiment with it to figure out what that is. And you have to really objectively evaluate your performance. Are you when are you best? Because 
I know some people that are horrible in the morning, no matter how hard they try. Um, when I was in, you know, in med school and residency, your schedule's dictated to you. And, and, and there were people who were better at night, who were better. You know, if it was two in the morning, you know, my brain was sort of working, but I had, I had colleagues who I would call and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Because I knew that they were sharp. Now, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. rounds, I, I, I would do all the reform because they weren't, they weren't quite awake. So I, I think it's, one more example, we were talking about nutrition, talking about training, all those things. One more example of you have to objectively look at how you perform and experiment with it a little bit. Be willing to kind of hack how you do things a little bit. So kind of back on the, the book subject, if there's, I mean, you've done a lot of things in your short time here already and you got a lot of knowledge. And uh, so if there was one book that you would write or you feel needs to be written, what would that be? I think we need to write more books. I think there need to be more studies done on because I'm getting older on master's athletes on performance and aging and are those decrements just because we got older or are they because we stopped being able to train the way that we did or we stopped training the way that we did because we just don't have the time that's what I, I that's sort of there's some guys writing some things about that now that are really interesting and I'd like to read a whole lot more of them. yeah it'd be awesome to dive into it's not awesome getting there no <laughs> no <laughs> Definitely a growing market, though. Maybe two fit guys can do something there. Well, all right, Doc. We appreciate having you on. We'll, uh, I guess we got to go hit up in a happy hour here soon. <laughs> so, um, but we've enjoyed it. Enjoyed getting to know you, and we look forward to to working with you more. And we'll have you back on for sure. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I hope it uh, hope it was helpful. Where can uh, people hear more a little little more about you? you got a website? You're on social media. Uh, you know, I'm not that much. It's probably something that's uh, coming up for 2016 is to do a better job with that. My Ooh, launch date. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my daughter's a teenager, and so uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll nominate her to be my social media chairman. Yeah, there you go. All right, Doc. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks appreciate so much, you guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Two Fit Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Two Fit USA, the sports nutrition company owned and operated by the Two Fit Guys. To show our appreciation for you tuning into the podcast, we would like to give you a 10% off your entire order at TwoFitUSA.com. All of our products are sugar-free, paleo-friendly, gluten-free, non-GMO, and a whole list of other buzzwords. So hop on over to TwoFitUSA.com. Don't forget to use your promo code FIT1, that's F-I-T-1, at checkout. We highly value and appreciate your feedback, so please leave a review about the products and the podcast at our website, 2 under the podcast and products pages. You can also leave a review on iTunes. Now, if we happen to read your review during one of our podcasts, you'll receive a one-month free subscription of all 2Fit products. So write something noteworthy. If not, we probably won't read it anyway. So go leave a review, listen to the next episode, and till next time.